to not just zoom in 100% on the nose, but to zoom out a little bit and you know, look to see, is this the right thing to do the rhinoplasty at this point in time, or should I do this in conjunction with a genioplasty? Are there things that we can do to alter the balance of the face? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Rhinoplasty Podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. I am super excited for this month, which is brought to us by Elegan. Thank you. Shout out to them for enabling the podcast for the month of March. The theme is the influencers. Um, the reason I've, I've named it the influencers are the, the people that are guests on this month have really had a great and a massive influence in the world of rhinoplasty, both from like a professional, but also from a lay side of things. And kicking this month off all the way from the US of A is no other than Derek Steinbacher. Derek, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Thank you so much, Cameron. Thanks for having me and uh, excited to chat a little bit this morning. So Derek, off air, we were saying how different our geographies at the moment. I'm sitting in South Africa, 30 degrees Celsius, not a cloud in the sky. Tell the listeners, where in the world are you at the moment? Yeah, so I'm in Connecticut, which is kind of New England part of the United States uh, near New York. And, um, you know, it's snowing. It just snowed this week. And so it's, uh, it's cold and we're in the thick of winter. Uh, and I'm definitely envious of your temperature and looking forward to that happening here uh, over the next few months. Cool. So, Derek, we've got a really interesting topic uh, that we're going to chat about is really orthognatic surgery and like not just being so focused on the nose, but realizing that there's so much more involved in the facial skeleton, et cetera, et cetera. But before we climb into that topic, and I know we spoke about it, that you'll be able to share both for, for the listeners who are not necessarily surgeons, but also really some key take-home messages for the surgeons. Give us a little bit about your history. How did you end up where you're at now? Yeah, for interest's sake. Yeah. No, thanks. Yeah. So I started, you know, my training began actually going to dental school and I trained in some of the best centers in the U.S. I think I went to Penn for dental school and then I went on to do some maxillofacial training and I went to Harvard Medical School, finished oral maxillofacial surgery training there. Um, that was at Mass General and Boston Children's as well. And then went on to plastic surgery, plastic and reconstructive surgery at Johns Hopkins. Um, and there had really the full gamut of uh, learning and training about plastic surgery, not only the face, but uh, breast and body as well. And then finished that off with, um, you know, training in craniofacial and cleft surgery at uh, back at Penn and at CHOP. Um, and then since then, I've been at Yale for the past uh, 10 or 11 years and have been a full professor here uh, as well. And rhinoplasty, I think, really has uh, interdigitated with all of these interests. Um, and it's something, you know, as a, a lot of your other guests have shared, that you really have to have a passion for and you have to sort of teach yourself in, in part as well. And so, you know, I started getting exposed to rhinoplasty really during my plastic surgery training and just uh, started picking it up and, and running with it. Wow. Sure. I know two of uh, your colleagues from the Rhinoplasty Society are actually queued up to be uh, for their podcast to go out later this month, Paul Massif and Jay Calvert. You guys, as I understand, are quite a small society, but goodness me, you guys punch above your weight. Yeah, so it's one of the, it's the main uh, society in uh, the U.S. plastic surgery 
sphere that focuses on uh, rhinoplasty, and it does incorporate people from ENT, otolaryngology, head and neck, um, you know, specialty and facial plastic specialty, and also plastic surgery. Um, and it's really a nice niche group that uh, just gets together and, and focuses on rhinoplasty research and techniques and, you know, ways of uh, furthering the field and specialty. Yeah. So one of my, my best mates is one of the top uh, uh, maxillofacial surgeons in South Africa, Cyrus the Virus. I won't uh, mention his name, but many guys know who I'm talking about. And he trained under one of the profs who, who was quite instrumental with the sagittal split technique, as I understand. And I think that's quite something that's come out of South Africa. I know the South African MaxFax surgeons do a huge amount of work and they're super skilled in what they do. It's really nice for me to hear that with your background with that, and plastics and rhinoplasty that I hope that for the the listeners from a from a maxillofacial site to realize that they can actually step up to the plate and do the work because they are ex- exceptionally talented surgeons. But sometimes I kind of feel that they don't quite feel that in their, their field of having to work, you know? I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, no, no, I um, I agree. And they're so interrelated. And, you know, uh, firstly, they're very similar in that it's kind of modifying bony or osteocartilaginous skeleton. You're, you're changing the bones of something to influence the aesthetics or the cosmesis and the function of something. So when you move the jaws around, you're certainly going to change aspects of the face and function related to the face and breathing and airway. And the same with rhinoplasty. You're you know, taking down bone or adding grafts and changing the structure underneath to have an influence. The other interesting thing is that, um, you know, one influences the other. So, um, you know, if you're doing Lefort osteotomies, uh, that's going to have a major in- influence on the nose because we're moving the piriform and uh, we're changing the septum and it can change how the nose looks. So we have to be able to uh, anticipate that and be able to do things to modify the nose at a later date. Um, But interestingly, like you're saying too, I think, um, you know, I will go to some maxillofacial meetings or where the focus is heavy on orthognathic surgery and there's great results that are shown, but there's such a little influence. There's sort of a a less of a emphasis on the nose and how the nose looks. And, you know, these great results are being shown, but the nose is kind of being ignored. And then conversely to that, I'll go to rhinoplasty and plastic surgery and facial plastic surgery meetings and present there. And there's so much emphasis on the nose, but, you know, people start forgetting a little bit about the face and, you know, miss VME and uh, retrognathia and microgenia and those kinds of things. So they're really interrelated. And I think both of these things together are extremely powerful. So Derek, you're kind of in a unique position, kind of where you, you, between the two, what do you think is the, the way to try and marry them or bring them closer to each other? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know if every specialist wants to get involved in both of them necessarily. I I don't think that's necessarily the goal, but I think just starting with education and a recognition that, um, you know, if somebody's coming with an airway concern that, you know, to look beyond maybe your own sphere and and make sure that, um, you know, you're at least asking the questions related to, how sleep apnea is coming about from maxillofacial discrepancies. And, you know, if you're doing maxillofacial things, making sure you're focusing on the nose and ensuring that, you know, if they have septal deviation or things like that. And for, from an aesthetic perspective, you know, which is more and more of, of what I'm kind of focusing on, um, they're really very married together. 
but again, I don't know if every provider needs to necessarily do both procedures, but just having an awareness or education of them, I think, is, uh, is paramount. Okay, so another question I have for you, which might kind of almost be uncomfortable to, to, to answer, but I mean, you're, a, you're an academic. I mean, Yale, you can't argue that. Maxillofacial and plastics. Where does liquid rhinoplasty fit into the picture? Yeah, so, um, you know, I still see a, the whole gamut of um, cosmetic patients and, you know, some patients that want to come with very little, um, you know, intervention and have very little downtime and have a mild deformity. There's, there's certainly an you know, advantage to, to doing that, and we certainly offer that. Um, I think one thing I've done a lot in my practice, too, and we've written papers about this is fat grafting and crushed cartilage and fat for the nose. And um, for some of our, my primaries or revision rhinoplasties that we're doing, you know, subtle uh, asymmetries or depressions or those kinds of things are certainly can be amenable to aspects of filler, you know, HA based liquid rhinoplasty or sometimes fat uh, injections as well. Okay, I had a really interesting chat with Alvain D'Souza, the president of the EAFPS, earlier this week. And he told me that he uses a large amount of Botox during rhinoplasty mm. because he feels that, especially on like deviated noses or if you're working in the radix, et cetera, the, the muscles around the nose can have a big impact on the outcome mm. of the rhinoplasty. So I, I found that very interesting. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great point. I haven't actually done that uh, in rhinoplasty. I've done it for cleft lip for scar, you know, uh, helping mitigate the scar. And I do it in orthognathic to try to help prevent the masseter and temporalis muscle pull at the, at the jaws. But it does make sense. And most of the time I'll do orthognathic and then rhinoplasty staged. But sometimes we'll do it together. And maybe that's an advantage because the muscles and the facial drape has all been disinserted which sometimes I think is a disadvantage, but from this perspective of the muscles and the muscle pull, you know, maybe that's an advantage to a deviated nose and, you know, uh, removing some of that muscle pull on the nose. So that's, that's very interesting. But yeah, I think Botox has more and more applications all across aesthetics, not just, you know, aesthetic uh, brow aging and forehead aging. So that's, that's very interesting. Oh, maybe there's a study there. Uh, you can get some yeah. of your fellows to look into something like that. Right. So um, it's, it's obviously it's been a long road for you to get where you're at. Um, what is the resilience that you've had to rely on to get where, you, where you're at? And paired with that is what do you do to be able to survive your off time? Because you can't be just grafting as a prof at one of the Ivy League universities and working like you do. What do you do when you need the break? Yeah, no, sounds good. So in terms of resilience, I think, you know, just uh, having having this personal drive or having the interest in the, the topics and subjects that we're doing. And, you know, a lot of it comes from the patients and we learn so much from the patients. I think, you know, we never just want to come in and be cookie cutter in terms of what we're trying to do. Um, you know, I think especially when you're combining new and different fields together and you're trying to push in. Uh, push the boundaries and push the envelope of what we're trying to do and some of the results we're trying to achieve. I think looking to our patients and really studying our before and afters, and I do a lot of 3D morphometrics where you can really study results down the line and be critical and try to see, you know, what are things we can do or what techniques 
you know, we're using to make things better. Um, you know, so I think I gain a lot of the, um, you know, things that we're thinking about for the future based on patients and patient results and really just trying to be uh, as good as we can be and, and better and, and push the envelope, uh, you know, related to rhinoplasty um, and research related to that as well. Uh, and then, yeah, certainly, you know, um, uh, downtime is uh, is critical and, you know, you don't, uh, you can't work 24-7, seven, seven days a week and, you know, expect to, to not be veering towards burnout at all. So, you know, around here in, in New England, getting getting outside is good when possible. This time of year, obviously skiing and in the uh, in the summer months, out on the water and, and boating, and you know, out hiking in the in the spring and fall and those kinds of things. I think you know, similar uh, to you guys, you know, you need to get outdoors and uh, spend time with family and think about things, uh, you know, outside of plastic surgery to try to help refresh us as well and come up with new ideas. Okay, so um, before we get into more on the orthognotic side of things, one question in terms of the listeners that, uh, for because actually quite a few lay people listen to the, to the podcast I mean, all over the world now, what would your words of caution be to somebody who's considering a rhinoplasty in terms of what they should be, their homework, they should be thinking about why they want it, or who they should have it through, etc. for the listeners out there? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I'm commonly seeing or have seen to some extent is somebody will come and they've had, you know, either an incomplete rhinoplasty or, you know, they've had a full rhinoplasty, but still have, uh, you know, dysmorphology in their face or they're unhappy with the cosmetics related to their face. And, um, you know, then it turns out that they're really a candidate for orthognathic surgery. And it's possible. And, uh, you know, we have to do it all the time where we do the orthognathic after the rhinoplasty, but then the the nose is going to change again and they may need a revision rhinoplasty. So in an ideal world, you know, we would see a patient up front and you would do the orthognathic surgery first if they're a candidate for that, uh, then the rhinoplasty um, as a second stage. So sometimes we'll do it concurrently, but it's the second part of the surgery. But most of the time, I'd say 80, 85% of the time, I will do the rhinoplasty three or four months later. Um, and not everybody's a candidate for both of these procedures, certainly, but uh, you'd be surprised how interrelated they are. Um, you know, a lot of the jaw deformities come about because of nasal obstruction. Uh, there's a lot of studies from the, you know, early 80s and 70s where, uh, you know, if there's nasal obstruction, it leads to this vertical maxillary excess and sort of mandibular lack of growth and those kinds of things. And people have had experience with trauma that have caused their nose to deviate or congenital deviation. And, you know, they're really fixated on one element of these things and not always recognizing how interrelated they are. So, um, you know, I, I would just say, um, you, you know, just be aware that these are interrelated. It's all part of your face and that, you know, we want to be able to address um, everything. And if it's an ideal world, we'll do the jaw surgery and then the rhinoplasty. Awesome. Okay, really basic question. What exactly is orthognatic surgery and why would a patient need to have orthognatic surgery? Yeah, so orthognatic surgery, it's basically movement of the jaws. It's kind of, uh, you know, cuts in the jaws where we reposition them in one place or another in, in space. Uh, and many of the times it's the upper jaw, lower jaw and chin genioplasty together. Um, <clears throat> 
and there's all types of you know reasons that people want to do it. Um, you know, most of the time it, it has to do with their jaw misalignment leads to some malocclusion. Uh, but we have some patients with perfect occlusion that want this procedure for strictly aesthetic reasons, and we have some patients that have a perfect occlusion that have both jaws are back and their airway is closed off and they have significant sleep apnea. So um, the other, the fourth component really is the TMJs. And, you know, you can have some TMJ issues that can uh, either predispose you to, you know, jaw issues or they're interrelated as well. So it's those four things that we're kind of addressing by orthognathic surgery. Awesome. Okay. So now moving on a little bit more towards our colleagues, obviously uh, um, various other people will be listening, but, my first kickoff is a cone beam CT scan. So almost every single rhinoplasty I do, I'd insist on a uh, cone beam CT scan. And to me, it's interesting because there's, there's a lot of people who kind of say, no, you don't need a scan. And, but what you pick up on it is massive. And m the majority of my scans, I've also asked the maxillofacial just to look if there's stuff that I might be missing at the same time. I think it's essential part of rhinoplasty. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously biased towards cone beams as well. And um, I don't know if I get it for every single rhinoplasty, cosmetic rhinoplasty, but we have a cone beam, you know, right kind of in our center. So it makes it uh, very straightforward and easy. And the radiation dose is much, much lower. And it's not like sending them across, you know, somewhere to a radiation or a radiology center for a full CT. It's very easy. It takes 30 seconds. Um, and I, I agree, you know, if there's ever uh, any doubt of, uh, you know, some uh, issues with their sinuses or, you know, if I'm looking at their jaws anyway, you know, we, we definitely get a lot of cone beam CTs definitely before and after every orthognathic case. And we use this for 3D planning. And, um, you know, it's helpful there to be able to look at their nose and say, look, we're going to change your, you know, the position of your Lafort, but you have septal deviation that's above or we're going to be operating it. That's not going to be fixed in this surgery. And that's something we can do later, um, you know, when with the rhinoplasty. Um, I think the other advantage of cone beam CTs is um, the research component. You know, you, if you have before and afters, you can show how the septum is straighter. You can show the volume of the nasal cavity. You can show the sinus, uh, you know, change in sinus position and all those kinds of things. So, you know, I agree. I think there's great research potential. There's uh, ability for algorithm construction and things like that. When we're talking about computers and, you know, looking at ways that we can predict soft tissue changes and airway changes. So I, I think it's a, a great uh, technology and ancillary really to our, our procedures. Yeah, I think, you know, you touched on that research. So the, one of the things that uh, there's a couple of us doing like international collaboration with Miguel uh, Ferreira on looking at the, the, the differences from his side, it's more in terms of the hump, but we don't necessarily in South Africa, African humps isn't really something that we see much of, but to try and look at the relations between the cartilaginous and the bony septum and how much there is, because if we're doing an African nose, we need septum and there's often not enough. And the, the cone beams giving that ability to actually carefully measure that, which I find very interesting. Having said that, uh, I think that the, there's possibly, there's such a discrepancy in reporting on um, CT scans of the nose in, with our radiology colleagues. Some guys will give like a sentence and some guys can give you a page. And I think there needs to possibly be like a, a standardization of this is how a CT should be reported on. I don't know what you think about that. 
Yeah, no, I know. Absolutely. I, I usually don't even look at the report because I'm just looking at it, um, you know, myself and they focus on the run. They just say the sinuses are aerated or something like that. Or, you know, so they don't the septum has some deviation or they see a spur, but they don't really comment on the areas that most of the time we're really looking at. Um, it's interesting that, you know, sometimes I find that it's hard to distinguish between where the cartilaginous and the bony or I, I think we can see the cartilaginous and the bony septum, but in some of these revision rhinoplasties, you know, it's hard to tell, are they going to have any septum, any cartilaginous septum left, or is that all just scar tissue there? And they have, you know, supposedly a septoplasty in the past, and the septum is just so thick and inflamed looking on the cone beam. So um, sometimes I find it difficult from that, that perspective to be able to assess if there's going to be any septum left, left or not. Okay, so here's, here's a... Interesting question for you. Imagine you've got two groups of people listening to you on this podcast now. There are a whole lot of rhinoplasty surgeons, um, be that plastics or ENT, and then there's a whole lot of uh, maxillofacial surgeons. The orthognatic side and the rhinoplasty side, to try and get these guys to talk to each other, what would your main advice be towards the maxillofacials and then your main advice towards what are called the non-maxillofacials and incorporating some type of orthognatic principles into their surgery? Yeah, I know that's great. Um, so I think it starts with really, you know, if a patient's presenting for orthognathic at whoever's providing that, a plastic surgeon, maxillofacial surgeon, um, for them to understand, you know, what the movements are going to be and how that's going to change the nose. You know, so many of my patients these days, they want to know exactly how they're going to look, and there's not really great algorithms related to that but um, yet, um, but they come for aesthetic optimization and they want these procedures for cosmetic reasons and to look better and to function better. And I know, um, you know, some of my colleagues, they'll see these kinds of patients and they focus just on the occlusion or they, you know, they don't really think about the face as a whole. Not, not everybody, obviously, but uh, some people or some providers may do that. And um, I think it's incumbent upon them and uh, to give their patients some estimation of how their nose is going to be influenced by this. And, you know, patients always appreciate it. If you say, we're going to do this, your nose is going to look worse and you're going to need a procedure as opposed to doing the procedure. And then, you know, it's kind of a surprise to everybody. So as much as we can anticipate how that's going to change and if they're going to need that procedure in the future, I think is, uh, would be ideal. And then before even doing any surgery at all, making sure that that provider has seen the patient and says, yes, we'll be able to take care of any, you know, untoward uh, change in your nasal shape or appearance or function. Because uh, we know with certain movements, the alar base is going to widen, the nasal tip might turn up more, you know, there might be worse in septal deviation, the turbinates might become close to the maxillary floor and cause more obstruction. So as much as we can uh, or whoever's doing orthognathic can predict that, you know, the better. And then conversely, on the side of the rhinoplasty side, you know, and we just had a symposium on this uh, for the Rhinoplasty Society about genioplasty and facial profile, you know, to not just zoom in 100% on the nose, but to zoom out a little bit and, you know, look to see, you know, is this the right thing to do the rhinoplasty at this point in time, or should I do this in conjunction with a genioplasty, or are there things that we can do to alter the balance of the face. And, you know, if the, there's a malocclusion, you know, maybe before jumping into the rhinoplasty, let's have you see this specialist to at least talk to you about the pros and cons and benefits and, you know, risks of uh, undergoing orthognathic surgery first before the rhinoplasty. I think 
you know, if there's good communication and, you know, with all of our colleagues like this, I think, you know, that'll be the best for the patient. Sure. Okay. So rule of thumb would be first get the orthognatic surgery sorted out, wait for three or four months and then get the rhinoplasty. You wouldn't consider doing them both in the same setting. I do do them at the same set, and we wrote a paper about this a few years ago, but I find for a few reasons I prefer to do them staged in about 80% of the cases. You know, the first reason is um, in terms of anesthesia. When you're undergoing these procedures, you have a nasal ray tube placed by anesthesia to do the jaw surgery. Then on your freshly operated jaws, the anesthesia team needs to come and turn that tube, take that tube out and convert it to an oral tube to do the rhinoplasty. and then secondly, um, the patients, you know, you're a little bit, we don't wire anybody together, but they have pretty tight rubber bands holding their jaws closed. So it can be a little difficult to breathe through the mouth. And I use Doyle splints. I don't use any packing, but most of the time I'll use Doyle splints for the rhinoplasty. And you can breathe through there, but maybe not as well as you would otherwise. So I think from a patient comfort perspective, too, it's, it's um, not always good to do them at the same time. And then really the main reason is when you're degloving the, the facial tissues and changing the piriform and you're putting plates around, you know, where you're going to be doing your nasal osteotomies or close to that, that can change how the, you're going to predict, you know, what the nasal form is going to be. You know, we, we make some osteotomies underneath the anterior nasal spine so that we try to preserve the nasal base, but the nasal base is really weakened when you do a Lafort osteotomy because you don't have that anterior nasal spine, the maxilla to the posterior septal angle connection quite as robust or, or sturdy. Additionally, all the muscles and the periosteum has been, um, you know, pretty much dissected free. So the nose can be a little bit more difficult to predict what you want to do. So, you know, for those three reasons primarily, um, you know, I like to do it in a staged fashion 80% of the time. Yeah, you just answered my next question. I want to know what to be careful of if you're going to be doing a rhinoplasty in someone who's had orthognatic surgery. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's great. And, you know, um, we've tried to predict that. And if we think we're going to need to do a rhinoplasty in this person, I try to make sure that the plates that we place along the piriform are not quite right up on the nose, you know, because if you're trying to osteotomize or even use a piezotome to uh, do your osteotomies and you have a titanium plate there, you know, you can't go through that unless you're planning to remove those plates at the same time. Um, But, you know, repositioning those plates is one thing, making sure that we save the, the anterior nasal spine. I mean, the conventional way that um, people do Lafort osteotomies, you totally separate the posterior septal angle from the anterior nasal spine, and then that septum is just kind of flopping in the wind, and, you know, you reposition the maxilla, and maybe the ANS is now over here compared to the septum, and, you know, you can end up with septal deviation, and some colleagues in Europe have written about coming under the anterior nasal spine, leaving that bone preservation, and then, you know, I kind of bone graft underneath there, so by the time you come back to the rhinoplasty, this is nice, and it's never been detached. And, you know, as uh, you and others and Tori Yumi have talked about, the nasal base is really where it all starts. So, you know, if that in any way is um, not stable or it's deflected, um, you know, that, that can be an issue. So um, the other area would be when we do some impaction, um, you know, we want to predict how, how much impaction that's going to be and if it's going to come too close to the turbinates. Uh, usually I don't like doing full turbinectomy, but, you know, we'll do maybe some submucosal resection and 
Uh, maybe it'll take down some of the bone in the, the nasal floor so that, you know, there's room between the nasal floor and the turbinates. Um, you know, sometimes we'll widen the, the nasal cavity as well. That lateral nasal wall will uh, be able to contour that away to help the sinuses drain. But, you know, kind of considering all these things for a potential future rhinoplasty. But I think the critical ones are really the plates at the piriform and the anterior nasal spine. Yeah. Okay. So, Derek, I mean, this is fascinating. It's so interesting. What I want to ask is, what resources are there available for the listeners? I mean, obviously you can go and you can do searches and get journal articles and stuff, but there's not a like a go-to book on on this or perhaps a course or some type of fellowship or something like that that people can can try and reach out to increase their knowledge. Yeah, so we wrote we actually have a book that came out that does discuss a lot of these things, you know, nasal considerations in rhinoplasty and rhinoplasty and orthognathic surgery. It's called aesthetic orthognathic surgery and rhinoplasty, which really touches on a lot of these uh, types of things. So that's one resource. You know, and initially when I was starting practice, I was really interested in how the nose changes with jaw surgery. So we wrote about three or four papers about that. You know, I can send you links to to those, but I think predicting how the nose is going to change. Is critical, and then lastly, we wrote a paper where we looked at my experience with doing jaw surgery and rhinoplasty, and when to do it concurrently, like we said, and when to do it in a staged fashion. So those are some resources, and um, you know, um, I don't think there's any particular course. I think it would be a, a very interesting course, though, to consider all of these things together. Um, but yeah, I think a course and fellowships and additional resources. You know, maybe I'll put out some additional YouTube videos uh, as well. You know, at uh, but yeah, those, those journal articles and book, you know, I think are, so are great resources. Just remind the listeners, how can they get hold of that book? Uh, just on Amazon, uh, aesthetic, uh, with an A, AES, uh, you know, aesthetic orthognathic surgery and rhinoplasty, um, is probably the easiest way. Fantastic. And then I guess what I'm saying is we're going to have to come and run that course in South Africa. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be great. Yeah. Do some rugby and yeah. Uh, do you play rugby too? I used to play rugby, but um, yeah, yeah. That uh, that was when I was a young man. <laughs> Not anymore. Yeah, yeah. But we can get you to play rugby if you want to. They might even. Funny enough, you know, talking about that, I'd, uh, we recently looked at the last fifty um, nasal injuries, trauma injuries. I saw. Now, I mean, as an otolaryngologist, I don't see the same amount of facial fractures as the maxillofacial surgeon friends in town here. But of the last 50, we looked at that. And obviously, rugby was the most common injury. But what do you think the second most common sporting injury was of the nose that I saw over the last few years? Yeah, I don't, there's not much basketball there, huh? No, not much basketball. Maybe uh, surfing uh, or soccer. Surfing. What is it? Surfing. Surfing. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. We, we, we just are near Jay Bay where the Billabong Pro is every year. So people love surfing a lot here in South Africa. Yeah. How do they, and they fall onto their board? Fall onto the board or these laid back surfers get pissed with each other because they, (laughs) he stole my wave and they punch each other or whatever. Wow. Sure. That's great. Derek, this is a fascinating conversation with you. I I think this is an area that is so poorly spoken about at, at congresses and online and things. So I, I, I mean, on behalf of all the listeners around the world, I just want to say thank you so much. Um, for sharing this. I mean, what you're doing is fantastic. And guys, go out there, find those articles, find the book, and uh, befriend each other. The days of us trying to be in our ivory towers and not working together as 
different kinds of specialists are over. We've got to be working together. So be that the plastic surgeon, the otolaryngologist, the maxillofacial surgeon, we, we all got to, at the end of the day, get the best result for our patient. And it's not about you anymore. It's about getting that patient the best result. So that's why, I mean, being able to sit here and speak to Derek and hear what he has to say is just so inspiring. So thank you very much. Thank you. No, this is great. It's great. Yeah. And uh, finally, just shout out to Elegan again for enabling us to have this podcast. And guys, please come back again next week. Same place, same time for another speaker.